Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Andrew Birkin, head of research at Bridgeway. Our conversation focuses on Andrew's research around statistically driven, evidence-based investment strategies, from how to define a factor, to the realities of factor investing, to some of the new research around intangibles and other aspects of quantitative research Andrew is focused on now. We also talk to him about investment strategy alpha generation and how investors may want to think about finding strategies that can generate excess returns in the market over time. Thanks so much for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Bridgeway's Andrew Birkin. Just one more thing before we start. Excess Returns has been growing a lot recently, and all of that is a result of the support from our loyal listeners and viewers. We just want to thank everyone who has taken the time to listen to us and for supporting us and allowing us to continue to reach more and more investors. If you have a minute to do it, we would ask one favor of you. If you have benefited from the podcast and could take the time to subscribe on YouTube or your preferred audio platform and to write a review, that would be greatly appreciated. Both are a big part of expanding the podcast and will allow us to continue to get great guests. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Hi, Andy. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. We recently had Larry Sledrow, one of your friends on the podcast, and we were talking to him about the research that he does and the many books that he's written. And he was um, very quick to credit you on you know, being a, 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 one of his core partners, his key partners in the work around factors and some of the other, I think, important topics that you you have both um, written about and help educate investors about. So um, I think it's great. You and Larry are one of the things that Jack and I, and I think I know our audience really appreciates with the books you guys have published and the research that you guys have published is it's always evidence-based and you guys talk about the realities, both good and bad in investing. It's like, you know, it's very clear and very truthful research that's grounded in long-term evidence. And so, so, you know, we compliment you and we appreciate that work. Thank you very much. It's uh, very much appreciated. Nice words. One of the interesting things, um, that we've seen from a lot of our guests is that they, they haven't necessarily always come from the traditional sort of finance track. And what I find very interesting about your background is you have a BS in honors from physics from California Institute of Technology and then a PhD in the philosophy in physics from the University of Texas. So I just thought maybe to start, if you could share some of the lessons that physics has, that you have taken from physics that you've applied to your investing career. Yeah, as you've noted, uh, you know, people in, in investing come from all sorts of backgrounds. There's a good number from physics. I think for me and for many, maybe for, for a lot of people that come from physics, uh, a few things that we, we tend to bring is, a you know, a decent knowledge of math, decent knowledge of statistics, uh, programming background as well for many of us. And, uh, that's true for me. And certainly those are all, you know, very useful tools to have, uh, you know, when when pursuing uh, a career in investing, um, I like to tell people that when I started off in this field, uh, I didn't know anything at all about investing. I didn't know the value of a dollar. Uh, proof of that being that I 
got a PhD in physics, which is thought to be about the least lucrative thing you can do for the most amount of effort. But, uh, you know, I said about learning what I could, and I think it's, it's really important related to uh, another aspect of, of physics and the similarities that it brings. And that is in physics, there's a lot of math. Um, some of it's similar to what, uh, what one can do with investing. Some of it, you know, can be quite different. My background actually is in general relativity and astrophysics, but it's important to realize that there's the math and there's the physics. And this is something that was really made brought home to me by one of my, uh, one of the people on my PhD committee who I had been going, uh, sitting through several weeks of his class and he'd been going over all this mathematics and you know, how to solve it, how to set it up. And after a few weeks of doing this, he said, okay, that's enough for the math. Now let's get to the physics. And it really drove home to me something that I think I'd kind of realized already, but I should have uh, had more explicit, which is, yeah, you can do the math, but math is just the math. The physics in this case meant understanding what all the math meant and being able to apply it, understand what it was all about. And I think for investing, that's super crucial too. We've got a lot of data. We've got a lot of ways to tweak that data, so to speak. We've got, you know, with computers, the ability to manipulate that data, all sorts of different ways and to get all sorts of answers that at least look great, you know, looking backwards. But when we want to look forwards, that's when things won't necessarily work as well. And there's a lot of uncertainty in what we do. So having a good conceptual understanding of not just the math, but what the math means when applied to investing is something that's really, really crucial. And I think that's a lesson that I've taken with me from physics and that uh, I'd like to think makes a difference in, in everything that I do here. Well, I would also think too, it's like any science, it's always evolving. It's always changing. And like you said, with all the new data, existing data, new mathematical techniques, processes, you know, investing is an ever-changing game and people that build investment strategies like Bridgeway does, you know, you're always sort of thinking about your process and thinking about how to improve it. Yeah, that's certainly very true, very well put. And, and another point that perhaps I, I should have made. When one is doing science and one is, uh, you know, trying to push it forward, so to speak, uh, you know, doing science rather than say doing engineering, um, we're in an environment where we're trying to find some signal in a lot of noise, trying to get the next best observation or, um, the next, uh, you know, new data, what have you. And. When we get to investing, we're in a situation where there, there is a lot of noise, at least in, in the short term, I can't tell you, and no one can tell you what any given stock is going to do tomorrow or the next day or week or month. But, uh, so there's certainly a lot of noise in it, but if one has a good process, then one can over time be able to find that signal, the, uh, extra information that is in there and certainly you know, we see that all the time in, in, you know, in, in investing, um, timing, the market is very difficult. Timing factors are very difficult, but over time, a well thought out process 
uh, should work. One of the books that you wrote with Larry was the complete plot, the complete guide to factor investing. And, um, anyone that's interested in, in factor investing should definitely check this book out because it's kind of like, in my opinion, probably the Bible of factor investing. But what, what, what was, how did you and Larry, was it just, you guys were both producing sort of the research around factors and you said, Hey, let's aggregate this up into a book or, or how did it, how did it come about? Right. Well, Larry is, uh, as I think everybody knows, very, very prolific. He writes uh, a lot, not just, he's got a huge number of books and he produces a huge number of, uh, articles as well for, you know, for blogs, for content on various uh, websites. And he had asked me to, you know, review some of his pieces. Uh, I did, I provided comments, I guess he, yeah, he, he liked, uh, yeah, he liked my feedback and we actually first wrote, uh, another book called, uh, the incredible shrinking alpha. He came to me and said, Hey, yeah, I'd like to, to write this and, uh, let's do it together. We did that and from there, uh, moved on to your complete guide to factor-based investing, which, uh, I guess, um, you know, it's something certainly that both of us have got a, a great interest in and, um, you know, Larry is, well, I, I, you know, to, to his credit, he's just incredibly efficient, incredibly prolific. Uh, and our two backgrounds really provided quite a, a nice compliment. I worked for an investment management firm, uh, you know, taking these factors and applying them specifically at the strategies. Larry is with, uh, you know, an investment advisory firm and then, you know, taking those strategies and combining them for the end investor. So our two perspectives, I feel, you know, work, uh, you know, very, very nicely together. With, uh, with factors getting more and more popular, you know, it seems like there's hundreds of factors now. People are trying to identify factors every day. You had a great framework in the book where you looked at what makes a good factor that is likely to persist over time. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about what that framework is. Sure. We identified, uh, as you noted, this, this framework to, um, to deal with factors, to assess them. And what we require from factors is first off, we want a factor that provides a premium. That is to say, provides some, some excess return. By the way, I should preface all this by saying, uh, you know, what, what is a factor? Basically it's, uh, a set of characteristics that, uh, one can measure across a broad group of stocks. An example being something like the PE ratio, for example, price to earnings that we can measure for a variety of stocks. So we want that factor to provide a premium, provide excess returns. But in addition to that, we had five other criteria. And those five criteria are that a factor should be persistent. That is to say it should work not just in short periods of time, but across uh, long periods of time. Uh, you know, work generally across time should be so persistent. It should be pervasive working, not just in a very narrow space, but across, uh, universes, different types of stocks in the United States, in foreign countries, across different sectors, and ideally even not just in equities, but in other asset classes as well, such as fixed income or commodities. So per persistent, pervasive, the factor should hold up, uh, using a, a variety of different definitions and not something that's very narrowly tailored. So persistent, pervasive, robust, 
it should be implementable. That is something that works not just on paper, but can be applied in real life. And finally, it should be intuitive. There should be a good risk-based or behavioral type of an explanation for why that factor should exist and continue to work. And that's our basic framework that, that we applied in the book. The intuitive part kind of gets at my, at my next question, which is one of the things some people have argued is some of these factors are actually maybe too intuitive. So for instance, value is so intuitive that tons of money flows towards value and the premium is reduced over time. And I'm wondering, what, what do you think about these arguments that as, as factors have become more popular, they haven't worked as well? There, it's certainly a very valid argument. And certainly um, there is some evidence that that's true. Uh, academics have studied factors and how well they work before they've been discovered and how well they work uh, afterwards. What they have found overall, looking at a variety of different factors, and there have been several different studies, is that there is some reduction in their efficacy, but that reduction is about one third. So there's still certainly plenty of power within those factors. I should actually say, by the way, this was for the United States. There were some studies that have looked in internationally as well, and there they found that the, there's basically been very, very little, uh, drop in the efficacy of factors, uh, interestingly enough. So with a lot of people using factors, it it could reduce their efficacy, but certainly we have not seen any evidence at all that it's dropped to zero. Something like value, in fact, would be an interesting case where value is done quite nicely in the recent couple of years. But before that, we had a very long drought in value, uh, which I would say is not because everybody had piled into it, but rather everybody was moving away from it and uh, going into the more speculative, uh, well, some of them more speculative, not all, but going more towards uh, the, the growth stocks for, for a period. So certainly, you know, we, we have not seen, um, in but value, I should say, you know, has been very well known going back to the time of, of Benjamin Graham. And yet it's continued to work since then. There have been periods where, like the past 10 years, where it has not worked uh, particularly well. But in that case, what we did not see was people piling into value. We saw actually just the opposite. Then I think that sets the stage for hopefully a, a nice rebound in value, in fact, from, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the, you know, going into the future from here. That was actually value is what I was going to ask you about next, because a lot of people did question value during that decade long upper underperforming period. Although there have been periods like that in the past, you know, this, when you, when you're living through it, people tend to question and they say, say things like, well, you know, technology has changed value or, you know, they come up with many arguments as to why maybe value might not work in the new world, the way it did in the old world. I mean, did you see anything in that that was valid in terms of questioning value? Or do you think this was just one of those periods we've seen in history where it doesn't work? I would definitely go towards the latter that we've seen. Uh, you know, periods in history where all factors go through cycles. We've seen that for value. We've seen it for size, for quality, and we've seen it for the stock market as well. There have been very long periods where stocks as a whole did not outperform, uh, you know, a simple risk-free rate. This was a particularly tough period for value, but uh, I started working in investment management in 1997. I lived through the you know, the late nineties, which was another tough period. So they, 
gave me some perspective, at, at least uh, on, on value not working, I'd say as well, there's a few ways that we look at this or we can look at it. And one of those is to look at the spread. And by spread, I mean the spread in valuations between the cheaper stocks on one hand and the more expensive stocks on the other hand. And what we saw during this period was that that spread really widened. In other words, people were, it's not that value was doing so poorly per se in terms of what its earnings were, but rather that people were bidding up the stocks of uh, the, the prices of, of those, uh, of those growth stocks. Um, certainly some of them, some of the fan mag stocks, for example, things like Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, they have, uh, you know, they've been very successful businesses, uh, but in some cases, their valuation has got to be quite extreme. And in many ways, it reminds one of the nifty 50 period of the 1970s, where there were these, you know, so-called, you know, can't miss stocks that became more and more, uh, a percentage of the market, but, uh, that's a game that can't go on for forever. And eventually it reverts and certainly over the past year or so we've seen a reversion in, uh, you know, some of those extreme stocks. So in brief, uh, no, there's nothing new under the sun or history, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. One of the things people who challenge value specifically question is the price to book. And, you know, in that case, they have maybe a little bit more of an argument in that we are living in a world now where intangible assets are much more important. I mean, you mentioned the fan mag stocks. You know, you wouldn't argue the value of those companies is in the buildings they have or their equipment. You know, they do have significant intangible assets. And in a lot of cases, you know, those intangibles are not getting reflected in their financials. I'm wondering, do you think the price to book is still something that's effective in that world? Or do you think maybe other metrics are maybe more appropriate? Well, we've always taken the position at Bridgeway and I have uh, that. There's multiple ways to measure value and price to book is only one of them. So for example, there's things like price to earnings, price to sales, price to cash flow. All these are different aspects of value and plays into, uh, the factor criteria given before of being robust to different definitions. So while I believe in value, it doesn't mean that I believe in, uh, in price to book. Uh, exclusively by, by no means. In fact, the larger cap stocks price to book has been really only modestly effective. It's in the smaller cap stocks that it's, it's done much, much better. So we believe in diversification and that certainly holds true for looking at different measures of value. So I very much believe that one should not rely strictly on price to book, but include other measures as well. That's one way, by the way, of helping to address the issue of intangibles that you raised, because some of these stocks, uh, some of these metrics like price to book are very much influenced by intangibles, whereas others such as price to sales, sales is something that at least directly is, is not affected by intangibles at all. And in fact, uh, by any measure value had a very tough time, uh, in in this prior decade, whether it be price to book, which is affected by intangibles or price to sales, which is not. So having said all that, yes, intangibles have gotten more important over the years. And it's something, it's actually an, an active, uh, area of research for us here at Bridgeway 
And it's something that we've been uh, addressing in a number of ways, one of which is to use these multiple measures of value, some from the balance sheet, some from the top and bottom of this, you know, uh, earning statement, statement of cash flow as well. And that's one way to handle it. But we've also been investigating what happens, you know, making adjustments to, to these metrics. And that's not just for book value, uh, alone, which is what many of the academic papers have looked at so far, but also, for example, earnings are going to be affected uh, by intangibles as well. So it's an active area of research. It does seem to help, uh, certainly with, uh, making book value better when used in terms of price to book. But if you think that, well, that's, that gives you a better measure of book value, book value is used in other places in investing besides just valuation with the price to book metric. It's also used, for example, in profitability with something like ROE or gross profitability, where it sits, uh, you know, on the other side. And if one believes that one's got a better measure of book, then hopefully it would be providing not just a better value measure, but a better profitability measure. And that's something we're actively investigating. Let me, let me leave it at that for the moment. We'll have you, we'll have you back on when that, uh, when that research is done, <laughs> you know, and one of the things in defense of price to book, and you, you may agree or disagree with this, but you know, one of the things we've also seen is, you know, at the bottom of the barrel in terms of the cheapest price to book stocks. Intangibles are way less of an issue. So, you know, if you're running a deep value strategy, you know, those companies typically have a lot less intangibles than, say, the Amazons and the Microsofts of the world. Yeah, that's certainly very true. It, uh, it very much affects those stocks, which tend to be on the growthier side of things than on the value side. Uh, it's actually another avenue for our, our research here as well, which is um, looking at stocks by intangible intensity and evaluating them uh, perhaps a, a little bit differently, depending upon whether they have high intangible intensity or low intangible intensity and, uh, you know, focusing on different measures. So with growth stocks or with stocks that have got high intangible intensity, where maybe the accounting measures are a little bit more noisy, things, measures that rely upon uh, sentiment metrics, such as, uh, you know, momentum, for example, or analyst estimates, tend to work a little bit better. And uh, so doing what we call contextual factor application, um, where we make, uh, you know, modify the, the way that we apply these factors for high intangible or low intangible uh, sectors or industries or stocks is, uh, again, an active area of our research here. How do you think about, you know, some of the value investors we have on are pretty hardcore value investors. They tend to focus on value metrics. And then we've had others on who, who think about, you know, the idea of adding momentum or adding quality, adding other things to a value strategy. How do you think about that idea of, you know, maybe hardcore value versus enhancing value with these other factors? We always like diversity. And so including other factors that affect, uh, you know, affect the returns of stocks that we believe at night, think that that can be quite a good idea. Now, how does one do this? Uh, well, if we take the, for example, momentum, one finds that, uh, you know, stocks that, uh, you know, deep value stocks, in some cases, they're stocks that are cheap. And then you have other stocks that have become cheap. 
And there's an expression, you know, you want to watch catching the falling knives. That is, there's stocks that have become cheap as the prices have gone down, but they may keep on going down. And that's basically what momentum is all about. So taking into account momentum, for example, by avoiding buying those stocks that have been coming down in price can certainly uh, add to one's returns or help one's portfolio, keep the momentum exposure from becoming super negative, which is a characteristic of strictly value portfolios. They tend to have very negative momentum, which historically has not done that well. Additionally, with your your value stocks that have been going up, that have been recovering from being beaten down. For those that have got very high momentum, maybe holding on to them for a bit longer. Momentum is a very quick acting factor. So, you know, avoiding buying those extreme losers, holding on to your winners a little bit more helps. Now you'd asked about profitability as well. So let me ramble on for just a moment more. Uh, yes, believe very much in profitability. One interesting kind of fact about profitability is stocks that are profitable by whatever measure, you know, if you're using ROE, for example, that's, uh, you know, you're looking at good earnings relative to book value or ROA relative to total assets or growth profitability, you know, sales minus cost of goods sold. All of these stocks that are going to have good profitability, they tend to have good earnings because you need those good earnings to have a good ROE. You have, need to have good sales in order to get good gross profitability. So by using uh, multiple metrics to get at value, that actually gets us uh, very much a profitability tilt as well. It gets us into stocks that have high, um, that have got good profitability. Whereas if you're just using book to market, you can get stocks that have got very good book value, but have had, you know, very uh, poor earnings more recently. And that's an advantage of uh, the multiple metric uh, approach to value. It gets you that quality measure as well. Yeah, you know, that, that was a point Wes Gray made, which was eye-opening for me when he was on the podcast. He, he made the point that, you know, when you're looking at the issue with price to book, you know, one of the things is price to book tends to select low quality stocks. And so people talk about the problems with price to book, but as soon as you put in a composite, you address that low quality issue you know, of, of with price to book and, and maybe some of those problems are taken away. Yeah, very, very well said. And I think putting, putting me to shame for uh, not being more brief, uh, if brevity is the soul of wit, uh, <laughs> not very funny, I suppose. I, I want to, uh, I want to ask you about multi-factor investing, you know, because we've had, whenever we have people on the podcast and we have two people that are smarter than me and they both do things in two different ways, I tend to think there's probably no answer. But I'm wondering when you think about building multi-factor portfolios, you know, what, what do you think the research supports? You know, there seem to be two different ways to do it. One is sort of the sleeve method where, you know, I take my group of value stocks, I take my group of momentum stocks, I select them separately, I put them together in a portfolio. And then there's this sort of more consensus method where I try to find stocks that have both value and momentum simultaneously. And I'm wondering if you've done any work around, like if, if one of those is better than the other. Yes, we, we've actually, we've done a lot of work on that uh, at, at Bridgeway. we some of our strategy, many of our strategies, in fact, uh, very much use the, uh, the, the sleeve approach, whereas in some others, uh, you know, we do a little bit more of, of, of the blend. Um, and so we've looked at it quite a bit. Uh, there's various reasons for, you know, why we take those approaches, which I won't, won't get into, uh, you know, right now, but hypothetically, 
um, one might say that, well, you know, if, uh, you know, doing the, the blend approach should get you, you know, really nice characteristics of, of all the different metrics, all the different factors put together. On the other hand, when you do the sleeve method, uh, you know, what you're really getting is the, the top stocks by, by each of them. And a lot of the research that goes into these factors is doing something like, let's take the top stocks and look at, at how well they do relative to the worst or relative to the market. And yeah, they do really, really well. When you then do the blending approach, instead of having the very top stocks by these different metrics, you get things that are, you know, kind of you know, not in the middle, but not at the very top either. They're, they're okay. They, or, um, you know, they're high, but not, not the very highest. And that's not always where all the research, uh, uh, you know, comes from. We've looked at this quite a bit and what we found is overall, you know, you tend to get the same results at the end of the day. So I have to say that my my, what should have been my briefest answer to start this thing off. And then you could have headed all the rest of me out is that, um, either way works. And what's important, I think is to be able to explain those results because nothing works all the time. And you want to be able to, uh, you know, understand what's going on with your portfolio, not just for yourself, but for your clients. And I think that's certainly possible to do, uh, you know, both ways as well. Um, I guess one other thing I'd noticed sometimes, at least when using the, um, when using the, uh, sleeve approach is you could get some, you know, really outsized positive returns in a few periods. At least that's been the case that, uh, you know, that we found, but all this depends a lot upon all the details of, of the methodology, how many stocks you hold, how many different factors are you using? So this is all generalities, but, uh, yeah, the end result is, I think that, you know, both of them are fine. And if, if you say that smart people are doing both, uh, I would completely agree and say there's, you know, there's reasons why all the smart people haven't come down one way or the other. Another thing a lot of people who use multiple, or at least some people who use multiple factors will do is this idea of factor timing. So the idea that, you know, if, if like you mentioned spreads earlier, if value is really cheap, I might add exposure to value to my portfolio. You know, on one hand, if you think about it, theoretically, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm taught as an investor, I should buy things that are out of favor. I should buy things that are cheap. But on the other hand, a lot of the academic work doesn't necessarily support factor timing as much as you would think. I'm wondering, how do you think about that? I mean, do you think there's value to be added by increasing exposure to factors that are out of favor in, in a portfolio or using momentum or something to time factors? Yeah, it's a great question. It's an interesting topic. And the more you look at it, it, it's a tough thing to do. Let's put it that way. It's, it's, it's certainly very reasonable intuitive to say that, Hey, you know, when a factor's out of favor, when a factor's cheap, you know, let's add to it. But the unfortunate truth is when something's cheap, it can get cheaper. Still, if something's been going down, it can keep going down and that can, you know, make it very, very, uh, you know, very, very tough. Um, you'd say, well, you know, I added to value because it kept on, you know, getting cheaper. It looked really attractive, but I was just too early. Well, being too early in some sense is the same thing as saying that you were wrong. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of dangers 
per se, in, to be had in, in trying to time factors. Thing, uh, you know, things can persist in a bad way for longer than you might expect them. Things that are, are good can, you know, and, uh, and quicker than, than you might like. So certainly if one's going to do it, use a lot of caution. We believe very much, you know, say what you're going to do and do it. And we, again, believe very much in diversification. Uh, so I, I guess I, I, I'm certainly quite wary. I've seen things, uh, you know, people have said, I can't take it anymore, uh, or I'm gonna, you know, go with this because it's been trending. And then, you know, thing, you know, things revert, uh, I've also seen the case where people have, you know, said, oh, this can't go on any longer. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to add to it because it can't, can't keep doing poorly. And lo and behold, it does poorly for, you know, another year or two before finally reverting. So that timing is very, very tricky. Yeah. You know, it could be very tough behaviorally because, you know, if you think about this period we just went through with value, I mean, value got cheap a lot before value actually came back. And, you know, you have to, if you can't sit there and take the torture, you're not going to get the results from the back end, which can make it challenging. Yeah. As uh, you know, noted financial advisor, Mike Tyson said, you know, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And uh, certainly for value investors, you know, it was a big, uh, you know, punch in the face, uh, you know, going back a few years. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, stick with, uh, stick with your plan, stick with what you're doing. Uh, and, uh, you know, things will, uh, will come back and will work. And we've certainly seen that with value in the, in the past couple of years. Just a couple more for me before I hand it back to Justin. One of the things that's always intrigued me is growth investing. So, you know, if you, if you look at value investing in general, we kind of have a tailwind in that if you buy a basket of value stocks, you typically get some outperformance. You know, growth is sort of the opposite of that. You've got a headwind. If you buy just a random basket of growth stocks, you typically underperform. But inside of that growth space is typically some of the best performers in the market, the Facebooks of the world. And I'm wondering as quant investors, I mean, do you think there's any future for us in terms of being able to maybe identify those great growth companies from the bad universe using quantitative metrics? Or do you think that's something that's really going to be something for discretionary investors? I would say that, yeah, you know, quant techniques can, can work in the growth space. So we have, you know, some experience doing that. Um, yeah, certainly uh, applying this context, contextual factor application, for example, can, can help. Um, you know, finding those very few winners can be very, very, uh, you know, tricky indeed, but using an appropriate amount of, uh, you know, risk control can certainly help in, in that regard. And then, uh, you know, one of the things is, uh, within the growth space, I mean, value investing still does work. Those stocks, which are, uh, you know, reasonably priced growth stocks, that is, they're not cheap, but neither are they, you know, super speculative. They, they do tend to do better than, you know, the far more speculative stocks. In addition, uh, look at the stocks that have got some profitability with it and especially using sentiment measures such as, uh, you know, momentum or, or analyst, uh, type information is something that does tend to work, you know, pretty well within the growth space. So when the most speculative stocks are really taken off, yeah, that can make it tough. But uh, for most periods, quant methods can, uh, you know, can, can still do a decent job within the growth space. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about is inflation. You know, I've been very lucky, you know, in my entire quant investing career, I've seen benign inflation up until recent times. And 
And I'm wondering, like, as a quant investor, is there anything we should think about differently in terms of the way we're building our strategies? You know, we don't know if inflation is going to persist or not, but thinking about inflationary environments of the past, is there anything we should think about differently in terms of strategy construction as quant investors? Yeah, uh, thank you very much for the question. Um, it's actually something, yeah, it's a topic that's uh, that's top of mind for, for, for so many investors these days with, uh, you know, with, with inflation, you know, having spiked again. Uh, in, in addition, you know, what we've seen is interest rates are rising for the first time in, you know, like 40 years. We've seen, uh, you know, as well, we stopped bear market. We're worrying about whether a recession is going to come. And these are all things that I've written about and that are available either in journals or on our websites. Uh, the most recent being inflation. Let me start off with a pet, pet peeve of mine. Um, I have for most of my career been an equity guy. And my pet peeve is that when any of these things that we're talking about happen, it seems to me like the market is always full of articles about, oh, it's time to sell equities. And as an equity guy, I don't like people selling equities. For example, you know, people say, oh, it, you know, bond yields are, you know, going up, interest rates are going up, but sell equities. Well, you know, what does, what does the math tell you? It tells you that, you know, when yields go up, bond prices go down. And yet people are talking about selling equities. So I've been looking at, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at these different kinds of things and there's some commonalities there. And so the first of the commonalities is that in, in these different uh, types of environments, you get a wide, wide variety of results. So first off, stocks in general tend to do, you know, pretty well over time and they tend to do well in these various environments. But again, with a lot of variation and factor investing, you know, works well over time. And again, in these different environments, they, they tend to work well, but again, with a lot of variation. So making very specific predictions tends to be something that's tough to do, uh, you know, given the, the environment, but, uh, that speaks, you know, first off to using diversity. So diversifying across your asset classes and then diversifying across the factors that you use within those, uh, different asset, uh, you know, those, those factors that you use to evaluate stock. Now, having said all that, uh, with inflation specifically, um, I looked at, uh, how stocks, bonds and cash do in different inflationary environments. And when inflation is very high, uh, you know, stocks as a whole, they do tend to lag inflation. They're positive on average in nominal terms, but they don't quite match inflation when inflation is in the top quintile, the top 20% of years in which we've, we've had inflation. So, but having said that, um, yeah, stocks have lagged inflation by a little bit, but then what's your alternatives? You sell out of stocks. What are you going to do? Go to cash? Cash has done worse than stocks during periods of very high inflation. And you can see that right now where inflation has been, uh, you know, quite high and the yields that you can get, uh, on cash are, are lower than what inflation has been. What about fixed income? Fixed income does even, you know, bonds do even worse in periods of high inflation. So in periods of high inflation, stocks on average have lagged inflation by a bit, but they've been better than cash. They've been better than bonds. And again, 
with a lot of variation. We can see this by going back all the way to 2021. We finished off the year with 7% inflation, but it was a fantastic year for stocks. The S&P 500 was up well over 20%. I don't, I don't have the number in front of me. Now, last year, 2022, we had high inflation and, uh, you know, stocks didn't do well. So we see this huge variation. But if at the start of 2021, someone had said, hey, inflation's going to be 7% for this year, and you've got out of stocks, you would have missed out on a huge rally. And that just speaks to the point of the wide variation and the difficulties in, in timing anything, uh, you know, in this field. How about the, uh, the idea that certain factors do better in inflation? You know, people will say like intuitively in an inflationary environment, you want to be in value. Is there any, is there anything in the academic research to back that up? Or is that kind of something that makes sense intuitively, but doesn't make sense, you know, when, when you actually test it? Yeah. Thank you for the question, because it's what I should have said it as part of my last answer. So I very much appreciate you bringing it up. Um, uh, we looked at, uh, at different type, at different factors and for the most part, uh, uh, you know, again, you, you have this wide variation and they tend to do, you know, well over time, well in high inflation, well in low inflation. But value was an interesting exception. And so historically, uh, you know, as you've noted, uh, in fact, when inflation is very high, value has done very well. It's, it's had its best. So if you take all the years, rank them by inflation, and you look how value did in each of those, in the top 20% of uh, the highest inflation years, values had its highest returns. In the 20% of the lowest inflation years, values had some of its poorest returns. And if one looks, for example, at how value did by decade versus inflation for that decade, again, you see a pretty nice pattern where values actually done best in higher inflation years, higher inflation decades, and worse in lower inflation years and decades. Again, there's variation you know, on a year to year basis, but over a very long term, it seems to be that value does quite well in, um, you know, in, in higher inflation, uh, type of environments. Uh, and that's one reason why, you know, well, we've seen value do, you know, do quite well in, in the past couple of years. Uh, it's one reason why we think that value has got a nice future going forwards. I don't want to be promissory again, getting back to the wide variation. But it's not just inflation, it's the fact that despite value having rallied quite a bit of late, it's still relatively cheap in some sense. In other words, the spreads between value stocks and growth stocks have not closed by any means. We think that there's still room to run with, with value based upon its uh, valuations, based upon its uh, previous underperformance, there's still more room to go. Andy, I'm going to ask you to put your, your, uh, philosophy hat back on with me for a second. And, um, let me just try to flush this question out. So you wrote with Larry, you wrote the book, the incredible shrinking alpha. Um, and you know, it's interesting when we first started managing money for us, it was all about trying to generate excess returns over the market. And but also over the years, we've talked to a lot of different financial advisors, people actually advising individual investors on how to be successful and help grow their wealth in the markets. And alpha never comes up. It's not about excess performance that, you know, we've, it's all about 
what set of investments can help them meet their goals? So I guess my question is, and I get like, you know, Bridgeway is an investment manager and you have thousands of investment managers that have a mandate to deliver excess returns over their benchmark. Yet financial advisors, and I would even say retail investors, the vast majority have no idea what their, their performance is over the last 12 months, whether they beat the market or not. So is Alpha kind of not important maybe as it once was, or what do you think? We did write the book, Credible Shrinking Alpha. Um, you know, first off, it begs the question of, yeah, what is Alpha? Uh, is Alpha simply beating the market? And the answer in our book is no. Alpha means beating an appropriate uh, you know, risk-adjusted benchmark. So, you know, I've been arguing here, uh, and, you know, you've been feeding me, I guess, the, the, the prompts that things that, you know, various factors can, can help you beat the market. Things like value stocks, for example, or momentum or quality. Very much think that way. We would argue that if you beat the market with value, that's not alpha, that's beta, not market beta, but, uh, you know, beta to the, the factor, uh, to the value factor. So what investors, you know, really want, as you said, is, you know, they've got a set of goals. They want to reach that when you're looking, uh, at, at your investments, one can, you know, try to pick the very best stocks. One might say that that's looking for alpha. One can try to time the market. One might say that's alpha. That's difficult. Our view is, uh, you know, don't try to, you know, do your own individual stock selection. Don't try to time the market, but invest in factors. And that can lead to not just long-term better performance, but also performance that is well understood and that can be fit, uh, into a plan and explained to investors. Uh, I think that goes a long way than just, you know, I'm going to pick you the, the very few, uh, you know, best stocks that are out there. Well, I think there was a whole group of investors that have, are probably new to investing over the past 10 years that had thought they got alpha from all the hot growth stocks and hot growth funds. And then that alpha is basically gone. I think like, you know, since ARK's, uh, launch, Berkshire Hathaway has now outperformed what was one of the best performing funds. So it's like, you know, alpha can look like alpha, but that might be more luck than alpha. And then it sort of blows up on you. On the other hand, you know, I was thinking to your point about value earlier. And one of the things you tend to see with these, you know, like systematic value strategies, is they can not be doing very much, but then they have these ex periods of explosive performance. And a lot of the, um, a lot of the excess returns come from like, like kind of short periods of time. And to some extent, it's hard for investors to just sit there and deal with below market returns if that's what they've got out of their value strategy. But then that's why it's important for them to be there on the back end when the strategy actually outperforms and delivers that type of performance. It's the point, I guess. Yeah, I very much agree. Um, you know, with all factors, uh, certainly with values, certainly the stock market as well, um, you can get tremendous uh, bounce backs after something has been, been doing poorly. And we see that, for example, with the stock market as a whole, coming out of recessions, for example, coming out of bear markets, you can get massive jumps in performance. When value has been, you know, beaten down before, and I saw this, you know, 1998, 1999, first quarter of 2000, 
horrible time for value was, you know, getting cream. But starting uh, in the, the second quarter of 2000, value had a spectacular run over, over the, the next few years. And it made everything back and a lot more. We're in a period where value has suffered for most of the, you know, the, the previous decade. The bounce back, again, has, uh, has been quite tremendous. And it speaks to the dangers of trying to time the market. To the dangers of trying to to time factors, and it speaks to the benefits of having a plan and sticking to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that chart, which Jack and I have probably referenced like at least a dozen times from your factor books, which shows a table of each factor, and then I think it shows the probability of it outperforming over one year, three years, five years, ten years, and twenty years. And the point is, is that no factor works consistently in every any given year, but to some extent, a multi-factor um, approach is maybe the best for a lot of investors that can't deal with the you know, tracking error that might come from a more-factor approach. But um, yeah, we're sort of on, in, in your camp with value as well, just given given um, you know what's gone on the last ten to twelve years or so. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning the, the chart. It's a, you know it's a favorite of ours, and it speaks you know really to the the first. Um, our, our kind of first condition on our framework for factors, which is persistence. Uh, persistence doesn't mean that something works all the time. And in fact, in the chart that you point out over a one year period, you know, these factors tend to, yeah, they, they work, you know, better than 50% of the time, but, uh, you know, not, not every single year, as you go to longer periods to three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, you get a much better consistency for these factors. And so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really sticking with it. And over time is when you see that persistence, uh, you know, manifests itself and you, you get that, uh, you know, that, that nice behavior, expecting something, you know, month after month or year after year is, is just not going to happen. Do you have any, just in clo- a couple closing questions here, do you have any thoughts or have you guys looked at all, um, Anything around machine learning and AI um, in regards to investing? Like we've had two guests on the podcast. One was using artificial intelligence to like try to forecast fundamentals and then use that as a way to figure out, okay, where are the fundamentals improve, likely to improve and then finding value in that area. And then another one of our guests has used, it's a little different. It's using like natural language processing to try to, categorize companies with like, you know, low price versus high intangibles or low price versus brand value and try to create like a value investing strategy using uh, machine learning. So I'm just, I'm just wondering, do you, do you have any thoughts on that area? And, um, uh, what do you think? Oh, I, I have thoughts on everything. It's like, my wife will tell you, um, and, and some of them may even be correct on occasion, but, uh, as my wife will certainly tell you, uh, but um, a lot of this goes back to what I talked about in the beginning with, with physics and having an understanding, not just for the, the math and the statistics, but what's going on behind it. I think there's a lot of interesting work that's being done in the areas of machine learning, natural language processing, um, AI. On the other hand, one needs to keep a healthy dollop of skepticism. And that's not to say that this is only true of those fields. One needs to be, yeah, 
have a skeptic, be uh, skeptical about, you know, pretty much anything, you know, that, that one does. But, um, the more, how can I put it? The more degrees of freedom that, that one has, the greater the ability to, you know, to manipulate, to try different techniques and with things like AI or machine learning, there's just a, a huge amount of techniques available. It leads to a, a greater increase in the possibility of data mining, of cranking through numbers in a million different ways and sticking with the ones that had given you good results. So my caution there would be to, you know, get an understanding of not just, Hey, it works, but why is it that it works? Um, and taking appropriate steps with holdout samples, um, and, uh, looking for robustness of results to try to get a better understanding of what's going on to try to ensure against data mining. This is something we've looked at. Um, I'd say it's more in the, uh, introductory stages. It's not something we're you know, heavily vested in right now, but, uh, you know, certainly do want to, you know, keep in mind, but again, with those both cautions in mind, I don't want to say it's not possible. I'm not saying that by any stretch, but one, yeah, the more degrees of freedom that one allows oneself, the greater the possibilities, the more one needs to be sure to check for things like robustness and, uh, where is that intuition behind it? No, that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. That's always something that I've struggled with is if you're using like, you know, machine learning and looking at thousands and th or hundreds of thousands of, you know, or millions of data points, like how is that not just a big data mining experiment? I mean, I guess to your point, asking why, but then running in and out of sample tests and all the things that you would do in a good test need to be done. So I'm, I think that's, that's, you're spot on with that. Um, let me ask you, what are, what, what, where, what areas are you currently mostly interested in with your current research? We, yeah, we've been doing, um, yeah, we've been actually, you know, looking at intangibles quite a bit. It's, uh, you know, as, as one area, it's a topic that's, uh, you know, come up quite a lot and, you know, within intangibles, I've, I've mentioned some of some of this, uh, you know, earlier in the podcast, but we really have a kind of, uh, five pronged approach to it, which, you know, sounds like, uh, you know, cool, quite a bit, but, uh, to deal with it, we've been looking at, uh, at this, uh, you know, several different ways. One of which is, you know, something to use multiple metrics to get that diversification. And some of those metrics will be affected, you know, in certain ways by intangibles, others in different ways, some, you know, not at all, but using the, you know, diversification of the metrics, we've been looking at contextual factor application. So two different uh, types of stocks, whether they're high intangible intensity or low intangible intensity, for example, behave differently. We have looked at, um, some new types of variables that, uh, not just from the accounting literature that can get at aspects of, of intangibles. Uh, we've also been taking the data from the accounting, uh, statements and adjusting for intangibles and seeing how that works. So adjusting things like, uh, you know, book value and not just the valuation, but in other places, 
looking at uh, earnings as well and adjusting that. Um, we actually have a paper that we've submitted that looks at the PBROE model, which is uh, uh, examining stocks based upon the price to book and their ROE and uh, how well that does. And we've done that uh, both with and without uh, adjustments to intangibles. It's actually gets some really interesting results there um, where it seems to help uh, quite a bit when one makes those adjustments and especially in stocks that have got very high in intangibles. And then the last way, the fifth way that we've been examining intangibles as well are metrics that, uh, that actually capture from the accounting literature, um, sub aspect of intangibles, uh, you know, separate from just, uh, you know, making the adjustments to things like book or to earnings. So it's, uh, you know, it's a decent research program. We're getting some interesting results and, uh, you know, continue to work on it and making sure that, you know, we, uh, you know, we've got a good understanding of it, but that's, that's one place. Great. Thank you for that. We like to ask all of our guests a standard closing question. And that is, well, based on your research and experience, if you could teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? You know, back before I went into investing, uh, yeah, when all I knew was, uh, was uh, physics and science. You know, was I an average investor? I was probably a below average investor uh, back then. And my advice to to me in those periods would have been, um, you know, simply be invested. And I, I think that's a very, very important point. It's, uh, you know, for your average investor, yeah, you know, being invested, sticking with it is, is very, very important um, for the average investor who you knew would have known more than I did as, as a physics major when all I knew was physics. I would say, you know, make your plan, stick with it. You know, know that you can take what's coming, uh, diversify and, uh, diversify across different sources of risk across different factors. And, uh, um, you know, keep your costs low, but, you know, make sure that you're getting, you know, what you paid for. Um, and in this case, I would say that, you know, keeping your costs low doesn't mean necessarily taking the cheapest fund, but, uh, a fund or a strategy that gets you a good amount of exposure to those factors that matter for the, the cost that you're paying. Um, that's my two cents as a long-term factor investor, I guess, uh, where I come from. We like it. We like it. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Andy. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.